Welcome to the WP Tonic Podcast, brought to you by WPTonic.com, a WordPress maintenance and support service for business owners. We talk to the leaders in WordPress, business, and online marketing communities, bringing you insights on how to grow your business and achieve success. Welcome back, folks, to the WP Tonic Show. This is episode 333. We've got a great guest with us, somebody that I've been following for years. I was so excited that he agreed to come on the show. And that is Peter Rojas, um, co-founder of Engadget, um, really kind of royalty of Gigiati, really. Um, <laughs> Peter, would you like to quickly introduce yourself to the listeners and viewers? Sure. And and thanks for having me on. I'm also... Um uh, honored to be on uh, episode three three three. That seems very special in some uh, some small way. Um, it's not a five hundred, but uh, uh, so um, I'm someone who um, uh, right now I work in venture capital. I'm a partner at BetaWorks Ventures, which is sort of a media focused um, uh, seed fund uh, based out of New York and San Francisco. Uh, but before that, I was uh, worked in uh, media and publishing and blogging. I was a co- uh, co-founder of Gizmodo and helped start Gawker Media. Uh, then I left and did Weblogs Inc., where I did Engadget and Joystick. Uh, and then uh, we sold that business to AOL, uh, ran, uh, I helped launch a few uh, properties at AOL, left, uh, started a couple new companies, one of which was a social commerce business, which I ended up selling to AOL about five and a half years ago, and uh, helped run strategy for the media business at AOL and also experimental product development for them before uh, leaving uh, just over three years ago to join Betaworks and help them launch a venture fund. That's great, Peter. That's my career in sort of a, a, a nutshell. Oh, superbly done, Peter. Uh, um, and I've got my great co-host, co-host, Cindy Nicholson. Would you like to quickly introduce, introduce yourself, Cindy? Sure. Hi, everyone. Uh, Cindy Nicholson here from uh, thecoursewhisperer.com. And so I help entrepreneurs with uh, putting together uh, great online courses. And I'm the founder of WP Tonic. We help mem- people that want to set up membership sites, learning management sites, Basically, you want to do something with education online. And before we go into the main part of the interview, I just wanted to mention one of our great sponsors, and that's Kinsta Hosting. And Kinsta is a, only specializes in hosting WordPress websites. It uses Google Cloud. I personally think they're a lot better than WP Engine. Um, they host the WP website, and I've worked with them on a number of other client websites and their support is just fantastic. They're big enough to have all the technology that you require, um, staging site, daily backups, latest version of PHP, but small enough to basically still care. And if that sounds interesting for you or or one of your clients, go to the WP Tonic site. There's banner adverts all over the site for Kinster. They are affiliate um, links. Um, so if you use one of those, you'd be helping yourself and also the show. So into the interview. Um, Peter, um, I've been watching some of your old interviews and that. And one of the things you talk about is building um, community that helped you with some of your own online properties. Yeah. Um, it's a word that's bounced around a lot on the internet. A, what do you think it really means? And B, if you've got any insights or reflections about how somebody that's got online course um, in the educational space can build community on their own property? 
Yeah. Um, and I'll, I will say that, you know, one of the things that's kind of exciting and also challenging about communities online is that they've changed a lot over the past 25 years. Uh, when I first got on, I first got on the internet even before the web in the, in the sort of early nineties, like 1990, 91. Uh, and, um, We've seen obviously this evolution over time, but I think for me, what I've always really um, cared about, or, or I hate to say found works because it, I didn't do it because it worked, I did it because it felt like the right thing, which is that um, to have respect for uh, and value the people that you want to be in this community with and sort of see yourself as part of the community, not sort of above the community. And, and my approach from doing Engadget was to treat the audience as being you know, much smarter and sophisticated than myself when it came to the topics I was writing about. And that it was my job to try to rise to their level uh, and to uh, make sure that I didn't disappoint them. And I, it was a big difference from when I had been a journalist before when there was this assumption of, well, you kind of have to write down and assume that the audience doesn't know very much or even that they're very interested in uh, the topic that you're writing about. And, and I think that when it comes to building a community, I think having respect um, and 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 uh, for those people that you want to you know kind of have coalesce around whatever you're doing is that's where you have to start uh, and assume that um, that they are uh, you know people with their own lives who um, if they're going to spend any of their valuable attention on whatever it is you're doing or participating or contributing um, that you have to make them feel respected for that and so when I, a few years later, ended up doing a site called Gadget, GDGT, which was uh, social commerce, sort of more, actually more even directly community driven than Engadget was. Um, the core premise was uh, of what we were doing was let's create a great experience for that sort of um, power user or core enthusiast around gadgets and consumer electronics. Let's give them the place that we've always wanted, where we could go and hang out and talk and share. And so, um, you know, part of what we did was we tried to set a high bar for the tone of the community. So we didn't, you know, it's funny to see these debates about around Facebook and Twitter about what is or isn't allowed on the platform. We, uh, we set a very high bar and we said, it's not just, uh, we're not just going to ban spam and, um, you know, trolling and things like that. But frankly, if you are um, contributing in a toxic way, um, if you're, if you are, um, you know, bring a lot of sort of negative energy to the, uh, to the, to the site. Um, we don't want you here because good, the, the negative, you know, the, the, the sort of the bad people drive out the good and you want to have a place where people could be respectful, where they could interact with each other and engage with each other and come away feeling better from the experience than feeling worse. And so that was to me like the, the fundamental premise of everything that I've tried to do. Oh, that's great. Peter, thanks for the answer. Cindy. Yeah, so I think it's really interesting in terms of how, you know, building a community is about kind of meeting them where they are and having respect. And, and I think with people creating like online courses or membership sites, they feel like they need to be the expert so that they actually need to be higher than everybody else. So so how how would you recommend, you know, somebody who is creating a course and, you know, or or has a membership site to kind of, you know, foster that community element, but still, you know, have the no like and trust factor as part of that community. Yeah. I mean, I think that if people just want to find information online themselves, they can always do that. There is always some resource out there that is frankly, you know, going to be free or um, if you just want to dig around, you can always find something. Right. And I think what people really value is 
um, the fact, the sense that they're going to be able to um, get, frankly, if it's guidance, it's guidance that sort of um, helps them uh, helps them understand what is worth paying attention to and what isn't. And so that's where I think the trust comes into it. So uh, I, I think respect, obviously, if you respect somebody. Um, what you're also at, you know asking for them is to trust you. And I think that was one of the things, like again with Engadget, which was. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't put myself forward as necessarily an expert in gadgets, consumer electronics, even though I sort of was. Um, but it was that, look, I'm asking you to trust me and that I will always be truthful with you about what I know, but also what I don't know. And I think that's ultimately what people want is somebody who that they can trust to help them navigate that world. And so it's not about saying, here's what I know and you don't know. It's about saying, trust me to help you figure out how to find your path. And I think that's, I mean, it's a subtle difference, but I think it is actually, at the end of the day, it is what people care about. Because again, information is a commodity now. Knowledge is in a way of a commodity. But I think having a trusted guide to help you navigate all that, I think that's the hard part that's missing. And I think that's the part that ends up being missing, frankly, from a lot of news and social products and things like that today. Yeah, I think that's an excellent way of putting it because again, you know, you don't necessarily have to know everything, but also just conveying that you're human, but you're there to help and support each other is probably more valuable than anything. Yeah, I think if you, if you, um, and I think you genuinely should have the best interests of your community in mind. Um, and, and I think that if you do that, it will shine through. And I think that the people will trust you and, and they will, you know, they will follow you where you want to take them, but you have to you know, that's a responsibility that you cannot abuse. Right. Right. Um, one of your early interviews, you, you discussed the, the importance in your own success and entrepreneurs online, the mobile experience. Um, we see a lot of educational sites, a lot of membership sites that don't perform that well on mobile, even in 2018. Yeah. How important do you think if somebody that's, wants a successful course or a successful education or build a success, successful education platform, the mobile experience is for them to have a success. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be hard to understate now. I mean, just given how much of, of uh, people's um, time spent is, is on a mobile device of some kind. Um, and so I think it's, um, I, I think you are sort of, um, writing off a lot of your potential audience if you don't have something like that. Uh, I mean, I'm even seeing um, sort of chat-based interfaces become even more uh, popular for learning and, and education where it's saying, it's not just about saying, go download my mobile app or even uh, it's saying, I'm going to meet you where you're at, which is if you're going to use, you know, SMS or Facebook Messenger, uh, and that's how you want to learn and interact. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce, I'm going to offer you something there. I mean, I've already, as a, as an investor, I'm seeing pitches of people trying to build businesses there. Uh, you know, and, and, and like, for example, we're an investor not to, I'm not going to sit and like plug all companies I've invested in, but there's a, we're investing in a company called shine, which is um, sort of wellness and motivational, like almost like lifestyle coaching type um, content for millennial women. And they could have, you know, done that as a website, right? I mean, 10 years ago, it would have been a blog. But uh, in 2018, it's SMS and Facebook Messenger. And it's saying, or it's recognizing if you are a 24-year-old woman who is um, out of, just out of college and trying to navigate the workplace world, which can be extremely complicated right now, 
that this is a, a resource that you can turn to and, and uh, kind of help you better understand and, and feel better and, and uh, ab- about what you're going through. Um, and an audience like that wants to consume it on SMS, for example. So I, I think it's um, uh, we're seeing a little bit of a you know further fragmentation um, going from what had just been desktop web to now there's video and now there's mobile and there's um, you know kind of chat messaging based. Uh, to say nothing of like augmented reality and virtual reality and uh, things like that. But, um, but I, I think that, um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, different audiences are going to want to consume and engage in different ways. And I think it, it's important to recognize that. Yeah, I think that's uh, a great point. We're, we're going to be coming up to our break in a couple of minutes. So I'm just going to ask you a quick follow through question. Um, so <clears throat> what you're really saying is, it's not only mobile, you've got to be aware where your audience is and what technology, the what way they're communicating in this kind of target community. You've got to be well aware of that now if you want success in 2018. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be that if you want to reach, say, there's like 24-year-old women, uh, you need to be on SMS. But if you want to reach 15-year-old boys, uh, that you got to be on Twitch. Uh, and I think that that um, audiences are migrating to different platforms. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, I would say actually one of the hardest things to do right now is to get people to download and install a mobile app. Um, but it's a lot easier to get them to, yeah. um, you know, subscribe to uh, SMS or get them to watch your live stream on Twitch. Um, and so I, I think that it is trickier because I think, again, when you see this fragmentation of the um, of the audience, it means that you have to go and do different things in different places. And it is harder, uh, especially if you are a one, if you're one person trying to, uh, you know, uh, find, uh, you know, address these different niches. But I think on the other hand, you can say, look, I know what my audience is and my audience is here and that's where I'm going to focus my attention. So it, it could be that you have an audience that is all, I mean, I, you know, you could have an audience that for desktop web happened to be just the right, for them, right? Maybe it's uh, maybe it's an older audience. Maybe it's more professional audience that's doing it at work. Uh, you know what I mean? So it's I, I think that that taking the time to understand the audience and 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 where and how they want to consume um, it can you know obviously pay off you know big time. I mean, when I again when I think about the things that I've built, um, we spend a lot of time trying to understand how do people you know how do people discover this? How do people want to consume this? What's the format that works? And um, the lightweightness and flexibility of blogging in the early days and, you know, 15 years ago uh, was huge because it sort of said people want something that is easier to consume, lightweight, regularly updated. And blogging software helped create a a new form of media that hadn't really existed before. That's great. We're going to go for our break, folks. We'll be back with this fascinating interview with somebody that I really admire, really. Um, that's Peter Roadhouse. We'll be back in a few moments, folks. Do you want to spend more time making money online? Then use WP Tonic as your trusted WordPress developer partner. They will keep your WordPress website secure and up to date so you can concentrate on the things that make you money. Examples of WP Tonic's client services are landing pages, page layouts, widgets, updates, and modifications. WP Tonic is well known and trusted in the WordPress community. They stand behind their work with full, no question asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So don't delay. Sign up with WP Tonic today. That's wp-tonic.com. Just like the podcast. 
we're coming back. We've had a great discussion. Hopefully, Peter agrees with that. Um, Cindy, over to you. Yeah, so, so again, thinking about, you know, the, the business or the industry that you're working with and how that kind of aligns with the type of, you know, people that are listening to this podcast that are creating online courses or membership sites, you know, one of the big things is you create the content, you have the course ready or membership ready to go. Now it's time to launch it and put it out into the world. So maybe, you know, if... Um, if you could provide some insight or perspective or advice around, you know, the, 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 the launch idea or the launch process that you um, think people should go through if they have a product, you know, such as a course or membership site to put it out into the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm a big fan of um, testing and uh, iterating and trying to understand what the audience is. And so um, some of that might be research. Some of that might be, um, you know, again, not everyone has the resources or the budget, but I think it actually is not necessarily a bad idea to um, just spend a little bit of time uh, testing out um, campaigns, right, on a Facebook or on Instagram or wherever you're, you know, you want to go and market your product. And, um, you know, you can go and spend a few hundred dollars and see what kinds of course descriptions do people click on. Um, when I describe the course this way, is it something that people you know, click on and maybe sign up for, you know, will they give their, and then how many people will give their email address? Uh, I mean, we saw, uh, um, I, again, I can talk from my own experience. We had a company that was um, testing out, they were sort of pivoting and they were testing out a new um, business model. And so what they did was they spent, um, you know, like a few thousand dollars on Facebook and Instagram ads to um, see how many people could we get to just sign up for a mailing, like sign, basically sign up for the wait list for this product. Uh, and they A-B tested different headlines, different topics, different landing pages, and they found that they could get a certain number of people to convert. At a, I think they were paying 80 cents a click, 80 cents per sign up to the, to the wait list. Um, and, uh, and it's one way that without having to go through and um, you know, build out everything, you can start to see, is there interest for this? Uh, you know, are there people that are expressing, uh, does, this, does this resonate with people? I think the other thing is then to maybe take people off that wait list uh, and then interview five of them. Say, look, I'll give you 50 bucks Amazon gift card if I can just get on the phone with you for half an hour, an hour, and walk you through what I'm thinking here. Like, would you, you know, think, discuss price points, discuss, you know, the topics and, and kind of understand, like, what are they looking for? Because if they sign, again, if they sign up for a wait list um, or express interest, um, there's somebody that there's something that connected for them. And so I think that it's, it's important to try to understand, um, what it is you, you, you know, again, who your audience is, uh, who your customers are, and then take the time to iterate and experiment. And I think it's hard with, I can think it can be hard with an online course to do a ton of experimentation after you've already put it out there because people signed up and subscribed and are expecting a certain, um, product. But I think you can do some of that research, um, beforehand to make sure that what it is you're delivering uh, is going to is hopefully going to connect or resonate with uh, with an audience. It's tough yeah. because you, sometimes you feel like you're flying blind, but I think every little data point you can get um, is just a you know helps you will help guide you. And um, the worst thing is when you have no data at all. Right, or or you have your own opinion as to what you think might work without yeah. actually validating it by asking anyone. <laughs> it's. I will say that. Um, it is really tempting to try to go with your gut on everything. And, and, I, and I will say, if you feel very strongly about something, I would never tell somebody, um, don't do what you feel is best. <laughs> um, but I think that 
sometimes you can be disabused of um, some of your own ideas when you look at the data. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's t I've had to learn those lessons the hard way myself as a product person and as a founder. Right. Things <laughs> have, have worked and which things haven't because so much, sometimes you want so much in your heart, something to be a certain way. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and it's not. And so you have to kind of uh, recognize that. Yeah, you have to separate the emotion from the logic. Yeah. Um, Jonathan. Right, Peter, you did your master's at the University of Sussex. So reflecting back, what did you, was, what were some of the most obvious cultural differences between British and uh, Americans then, Peter? Uh, well, uh, so that was 20 years ago that I graduated. Um, yeah. time, time flies, doesn't it, Peter? I know. Uh, I will tell you, one of the biggest differences I found was that um, Americans will become friends quickly and then stop being friends quickly. Um, they sort of come together and then fall apart quickly. People kind of, friendships kind of fade away. Um, whereas in, uh, in England, um, and I, if I'm characterizing this incorrectly, please, you know, please uh, uh, feel free to disagree. But people would um, become friends slowly, but then stay friends forever, uh, even if they stopped liking each other. <laughs> and so I would, I would have these friends in, in, in England. I lived in Brighton and uh, they would say, Oh, we, you know, we're going to have to get, we're getting together with blah, 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 you know, um, tomorrow. Uh, we, you know, like hate her. So, and I was like, well, why are you still friends with her? It's like, we've been friends for 20, you know, like we've been friends since we were six and uh, <laughs> all she does is complain. You know, I was like, well then don't spend time with her. Yeah, uh, and it was just such a different thing because, like, for me, if if you know, if somebody, not that you abandon your friends in the time of difficulty, but I'm saying if somebody had become yeah. just kind of toxic or negative or just unpleasant, you're just like, you know what? Let's we don't we're not married, you know, like we don't have kids, you know. It's like let's we can go our separate ways and it's fine. Um, and I and I think that Americans are are um, sort of better at. Um, uh, quietly untangling themselves from each other uh, as friends than, uh, than, but also become friends very quickly. And, and which is, you know, uh, on the plus side, I, I will say that I made some great friends when I was in England and, um, and, uh, and had a, a, a great year when I was there and, um, uh, you know, miss it, uh, miss it dearly. Yeah, I'll bring it up because I'm actually on holiday in the UK, actually, uh, Peter. I'm actually broadcasting from my sister's bedroom. Yeah. And that's why the lighting is a bit dicey. <laughs> I look like in, I'm in citizen protection, don't I, Peter? Yeah. Uh, um, but that's the reason. Over to you, Cindy. Yeah, so just to kind of um, piggyback that comment about uh, your friendships and everything, you've, you've worked with a lot of partner, different partners, um, yeah. in the different projects that you've done. So yeah. can, you, can you talk maybe a little bit about, you know, how to really foster a strong partnership when you're working with somebody in business? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's funny because I mean, there are people that I've, um, I mean, Ryan Block, for example, who I brought into Engadget, I think about three months after we started and ended up being managing editor and then editor in chief. And then he and I did uh, gadget together uh, as co-founders. Um, you know, I'm an investor in his new company uh, personally as an angel. And um, I mean, we had lunch together. We, I mean, we talk almost every day still. And I had lunch with him uh, like last week. So, um, you know, you can find people that um, you have these kind of very close collaborations with. And um, 
I, I do think it kind of goes back to respect and trust. And I think also, um, I think it's, you need to have people that you can have those kinds of, who can see you at your worst or, or have disagreements with and are going to um, kind of understand and, and maybe hopefully get past some of that. Because I definitely, um, uh, I think I, I like with Ryan, for example, I'm, I, I, I put him through a lot, I think, as a co-founder, because <laughs> there's so many ups and downs and, and, and highs and lows. And I think, um, uh, so I think it's good. I, I will say one of the things that, that I, I learned from working, you know, with him is that we actually tended to work together so well and we're so good at kind of finding compromise and learning how to meet each other in the middle that um, it actually started to have a negative impact on our product where um, rather than having one strong product vision or direction, we were sort of, uh, you know, kind of taking the median of the two. And so it wasn't, it wasn't quite this way or that way. It was kind of in this mushy middle. And um, it's one of the, 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 the perils you can have when you work with someone and you think well, we work so well, we're actually, you know, cause we didn't have like a lot of substantial disagreements. It would be more like, one of us would be want to do this, one of us would do that, and then we would always find a way to work together. When it may have been better for the product for one of us to, you know, say this is how it's going to be, and I'm not going to compromise, um, because you think of the compromise as being always this great thing, um, right. and it isn't necessarily always the case. So I think that's one of the lessons that I've learned. Um, I think one of the other things is. Um, you know, long-term, I mean, I think reputation matters. I think having loyalty to the people you work with is important. And, um, you know, I, I am sort of one of the, I think the only person who uh, was obviously part of, I was part of, I helped start Gawker and then helped start Weblogs Inc. And so I worked with Nick Denton, who's a very big personality in the media, you know, blogging world. And then Jason Kilcanis, obviously another big personality. Um, only slightly. Yeah. Two very big <laughs> egos. Uh, and, you know, I don't have that need. Like, I don't care about getting, I don't, I personally, like, I just, like, if I had zero public profile, I would be totally happy with that. Like, I don't care. Um, it sometimes feels like a cost of doing business to me, frankly. Right. Um, whereas I think like, you know, Nick and Jason, like, they love it. They ham it up. They love the, you know, they love being these sort of, you know, notorious characters. And, um, but I will say the difference between, I would, I would work with Jason again, and I would never work with Nick again. And the difference is that um, Jason fundamentally is loyal to the people he works with, to the people he does things with. And I think he feels that sense of obligation and loyalty and reciprocity to them that um, Nick, you know, never did. Maybe that's changed. I haven't worked with him in a long time, admittedly. Um, so perhaps that's changed. But I think that that is um, uh, that, you know, that we're all hopefully going to be in this business for a long time and that um, uh, people uh are going to, you know, the way that you treat people matters. Um, and, you know, I, I have, um, uh, feel like I've grown a lot and learned a lot having done this and, and certainly, um, you know, pissed off a lot of people when I was younger and I've still, you know, you, you there's no way to not have piss people off from time to time. Um, but I feel like I've tried very hard to, um, you know, treat everyone with respect and to, um, whether it's uh, a cold email from a founder or, you know, the CEO of a huge company that, that I can hopefully have a good interaction or engagement with them. And I think the fact that I've had so many long-term relationships and partnerships um, over my career with people that I would work with again, or they would work with me again, I think hopefully speaks to that. 
Right. Yeah. And just important in recognizing how important it actually is to the success of your business. So, yeah, I think one of the, the things that's hardest, um, and actually I, I, from living in New York, I think I learned, um, is that in a way, the best way to be successful is to just be around other successful people. Right. And, 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 um, and so that rather it's not a zero sum game so that if you, if you lift up the people around you, um, they're going to lift you up too, right? I know this sounds really corny and kind of Oprah-ish, but but my point is that like, it's not, um, I think it, you know, maybe a more LA kind of approach of like, I, w- I got to be a star, I got to win. And like, you know, my success is like my, you know, it's all zero sum. Whereas I think oddly in New York, people kind of realize that um, you would see these clusters of people becoming successful, clusters of, you know, writers or clusters of founders or clusters. And, and that's not a, coincidence. It's not like randomly all these super talented people or, you know, uh, just happen to be in the same place at the same time. It's that like they created sort of a sense of mutualism around their uh, success and, and helped each other out. And, and I think being generous with that, um, you know, is not, uh, um, is not a bad thing. And one of the challenges I had when I was younger was that um, you worry about being taken advantage of, that your generosity will be something that people will take advantage of or that you'll be sort of a sucker. And I worry about that a lot less now. Um, you know, I like, I you know, I was mentoring um, a, a teenage girl. Never, I mean, I actually ended up meeting her in person um, uh, when she was in town for lunch. But she was just someone who was like, I love blogging, being a tech blogger. Will you give me some pointers on how to, you know, be a tech blogger? And so I kind of mentored her over email for I don't know, like a year, a couple of years or something like that. And um, you know, that is probably never going to do anything for me, to be honest. But it doesn't matter. Um, it, it's you know, it, it's you know, nobody has gotten where they've gotten in life without somebody being generous and helping them when they didn't have to. And, right. and I think if I can do that, um, to the extent that anybody would care to have my help, um, is a real, you know, you should be honored if anybody would care about your opinion or your time. Well, that's great. We're going to wrap it up for the podcast part of the show. Um, Peter's been generous and uh, is going to stay on for another 10 minutes and we'll be asking some more questions. Peter, how can people um, find out more about you and some of your thoughts and what you're up to? Yeah, uh, so my uh, personal site is roj.as, and um, I do blog there. Uh, You can also follow me on Twitter at Peter Rojas, uh, P-E-T-E-R-R-O-J-A-S. I I guess I tend to um, tweet about, mainly about tech things, um, but hopefully things that are uh, charming or, or uh, in, in entertaining in some small way. So, uh, um, you know, the, uh, and I'm, I'm pretty accessible. I, I answer, uh, I will answer any sort of reasonable email sent to me. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's true. That's my feelings about you, Peter. You're open as long as you're treated with respect and you deserve it, Peter. Um, Cindy, how can people find out more about you and what you're up to, Cindy? Yeah, so if people are interested in, you know, creating the content for their course, they can find me at uh, thecoursewhisperer.com. And if you want to find out more about WP Tonic, go to our website. Um, It's got loads of content. We love to help people, entrepreneurs do membership training, and we love helping people doing something in the educational field. That's where we get our buzz from. We'll be back next week, folks, where we're going to have somebody giving you some information to make your online course a real success or giving you insights on marketing or WordPress or technology in general. We'll see you next week, folks. Bye. 
Thanks for listening to WP Tonic, the podcast that gives you a spoonful of WordPress medicine twice a week.